Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome to Podside Picnic. Uh, This is Pete. And as always, I am joined by the formidable Connor Southard. And today we're here to talk to you about love, death, and robots. Again. And we should talk to you a little bit about why. Uh, Do you want to pick up on that, Connor? So we did an episode on love, death, and robots, which for those who are not in the know, is this Netflix original series that came out only a few months ago. came out in March of this year. And um, there's a lot of backstory to how it happened, but the cool thing about it is that it's standalone episodes that are all under 20 minutes. Most are animated in different ways, and the animation styles vary. And it's um, they're all based on science fiction short stories that were published, some of which are, are relatively old, some of which are new, and there's also a few original shorts. But the source material, it sort of draws its creative vitality from taking these science fiction short stories and bringing them to screen in creative ways. And Pete and I love this concept. Um, We love it so much that I felt we should revisit it because even though our previous episode was one of our more popular free episodes, uh, at the time, I'm embarrassed to say, if you go back and listen to it, I had only watched four of these shorts. And there's a lot more (laughs) than that. And because it was because Pete, and this is kind of the irony... um, the driving irony behind this one reason I'm so charmed by Love, Death, and Robots is because I was reluctant to watch it and put it off until the very, like, the night we were recording when Pete was like, just watch, like, a handful and you'll be fine. Like, he really wanted me to do it. And I ended up loving it. And I, that, this is honestly, there's never been a Netflix original that I can remember of any form, uh, serial or standalone feature or documentary or anything that I can remember being as charmed by as this and and finding as interesting. And we'll get into why, but my core thesis about it is that this is actually this kind of low-investment standalone shorts that are creative and bold in some ways and in other ways could be more so. We'll get into some of that. Uh, Is actually an amazingly good use of the streaming platform. And it's, it's turned us into contrarians about streaming platforms because we think that there's a lot of untapped potential there of which this is a sterling example. So is that an accurate description of why we're doing this, Pete? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's the thing is, like, uh, uh, on the one hand, I find the story kind of funny, like the idea where I'm pushing you to, to eat your vegetables and you finally do and you like them. But on the other hand, it's ridiculously relatable. Just about anything I like in my life that I was introduced to by someone else, I, I went through the exact same process. So I know exactly what you mean, man. It's like I would never read Hellboy. So, uh, my brother basically had to hold me down and make me read Dune. Like there's a whole list of Oh, things boy. Like <laughs> oh, wow. Your brother made you read Dune? We're, oh, we, we know what? I'm sorry. We shouldn't talk about that now because uh, we have a lot to say about Dune coming up later on this podcast, coming up soon, and we'll get to that later. So Very hold that soon. thought, yes. actually. Um, <laughs> hold that thought. Uh, Love, Death, and Robots, though. So I have, having gone back and rewatched some of it, having gone through, I think, the whole thing at this point, I kind of skipped around, so I might have missed one or two, but like I, I, I watched it and have rewatched a number of them. Uh, I have a few that are kind of near and dear to me. 
uh, that I want to talk about in some more detail. And I apologize, folks. It, we touched on these, some of these in our free, in our last episode. It's been a while. I'm sorry if we repeat ourselves, but it's our pod and it's informal. So, you know, uh, I guess go listen to um, Age of Napoleon if you want a highly organized and disciplined podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, shout out to Ev. Um, I want to ask you, Pete, though, like, what are some of your favorites uh, from Love, Death and Robots? And what did you appreciate so much about them? Okay, well, um, I'm going to call out my most unusual first, unusual to me. It's like I really enjoyed The Witness, which is the one that was essentially a doubled time loop. Okay, I do not remember this one very well, I'm afraid to say. but Okay, well, in it, a, a woman watches a murder. Like, she's in Hong Kong, and she looks across, across the street and sees somebody murdering somebody else. And ends up on this running spree, and it ends up with her. Am I, are we spoiling? Uh, I say we should go ahead and do spoilers. Yeah, spoiler alert, everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm. I'm. I'm such mixed feeling about those because it's hard to talk about these things well, if you don't. But it, the, if you don't want to spoil the big reveal, then then don't. I would say I don't. I mean, you know, whatever you want to do. Okay. Well, I mean, the 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 point is the the. The loop that she goes through, witnessing the murder and goes to the end of it, leads to her committing the murder, which creates a loop where she like it just it like it 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 creates a perfect like figure eight or uh, Mobius strip of activity where where the action within the 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 sh- the twelve minute short is going to happen again and again and again and I appreciate that purity I think it's really interesting. Um, the weirdest thing about me liking it is that it wasn't based upon a short story at all. It's something that some person I'd never heard of added in and they just added it as you know an, an additional episode. But it was a great episode. I think it showed what you can do with uh, with animated shorts to make them, you know, adult and interesting and exciting. The others I liked, and, you know, we can talk about that a little more in depth later, but the, what I like the most about the others is it takes authors that, even if I, I feel their recognized science fiction authors are sort of neglected in pop culture, and it gives them a chance to shine. And that means a lot to me. Yeah, I think that's very sad reasoning. To what you were saying about The Witness, I, I was actually thinking about that uh, when Rob Rousseau and I did Terminator, which of course is a classic time travel story, and just thinking yes. about that sort of Mobius strip figure eight of like, where is the actual inception of the loop of events if it you know has to be, uh, if it's looping through time like that. Of course, it's a classic sort of parable in, not parable, a uh, paradigm rather in time travel stories and something you have to think about. I think a lot of stories abdicate that. And you're talking about this one doing a great job of sort of foregrounding it and getting this entire narrative structure from that problem. And I think this kind of gets to the core of what I love about um, not just so I, on the one hand, in the abstract, I love the idea of taking original material from from writers, from people writing fiction. Yes. Hallelujah. And paying them mm-hmm. and putting it on screen in a cool format. And that totally abstracted from content, I think is something that should be thought about a lot more. Um, and that, that I commend Netflix for doing this case. And we think about specific content. What, what is cool for me, and of course this is old hat 
if you're into genre short stories. And, you know, as we know, if you listen to this pod, historically, I have not been into genre short stories. Um, so I have a lot to learn. But in this particular case, what is cool is for me as a storyteller to see a lot of these these pieces that have been picked and have been foregrounded because they do have some really cool imaginative conceit. And it has to be a very tight conceit that you could basically pitch in a couple of lines because it's going into a less than 20 minute short film. And that a lot of what's built around that, the actual scaffolding of how it's conveyed, is going to be more conventional, and it's going to be conventional to the point of being that our favorite word, pulp. And I think in our last episode, we talked a lot about the pulpy aspects here, sort of like the gratuitous, a lot of gratuitous gore uh, and gory violence and a lot of sexuality that is sometimes extremely over the top, sometimes additive, I would say, but often like there's a lot of sexuality here that like doesn't really need to be there. Um and we talked about that a lot last time, but the point being that, Welcome like... Welcome to Pulp. Yeah, <laughs> I love... I am so bewitched by the idea of having this one... And this is this is not just genre short stories. This is genre storytelling as a whole. And, and it's where I come down on the side of being... of lo- What I love about genre short storytelling is that there's, there's always this one tight, often easily explained, but imaginative and conceptually rigorous conceit at the core of it. And everything turns on that, and a lot of what happens around it is much more conventional. And that's why that's where the disparaging uh, phrase. That's yeah. actually a good description of the theory of science fiction, too. You change one thing and try and build as realistic a world as possible around it. I, I mean, that's not a rule, but it's a common paradigm people use to build sci fi. Right. And I think that we're getting kind of the core here of like both what is so, I keep using the word bewitching about uh, science fiction and other genre fiction forms. That is sort of the imagining the high concept conceit that powers everything else. That's sort of the gravitational center and other metaphors you might want to use. And also the fact that what gets lamented and disparaged is like, oh, once you have that, then you can just sort of paint by numbers and everything else will fall into place because it's it's according to sort of genre conventions. And I actually don't necessarily agree that a lot of genre fiction really operates that way if you dig down into it, but that is sort of the classical way that it gets uh, figured, especially by literary critics. And, you know, I'm repeating myself, and I guess we're going to have to get used to me repeating myself in certain ways on this pod over time. All podcasts do it. <laughs> if I'm being meta, all podcasts have repetitive bits, and one of my repetitive bits is to sort of theorize about what genre fiction means. Um... And yeah, Love, Death, and Robots is a particularly elegant way of expressing it because all of these these stories were chosen precisely because they do have a really imaginative uh, conceptual core, a conceit that is also that hooks you immediately. Um, and I think that's that's one thing that keeps them all. That's really sort of I think where the the sorting criteria happened for what was being done in all of these stories. Um, yeah, I mean, Pete, one thing I didn't realize until I looked this up again for reading this episode was that this grew out of an attempt to uh, remake or make a sequel to the the famous 80s uh, schlock fest. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> Go ahead. It's heavy metal? Yeah. Is that what you're about yeah, to that, say? That, that, Holy crap. This is a group of, of uh, people <laughs> in the film industry who have been wanting to uh, do something with heavy metal which is a sort of infamous animated uh, sci-fi movie from 1981 that we'll eventually get to, I promise you. We'll eventually, we'll touch oh, on we it. Oh, we have to. We have to. I have not seen it. I'm, a, I'm aware of it via its sort of like, it's meme quality in the culture. I've seen like, you know, I've seen like it memed and appropriated elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is like, they're trying to revive kind of like one of the crowning canonical schlock pieces of sci-fi filmmaking and this is what they ended up with, which is wildly different than heavy metal, except where it's not, 
right? But uh, right. <laughs> anyway, that is very interesting to me. Well, that actually explains something to me that I've been puzzling over, which is, uh, you know, the Scalzi pieces in here? Yeah, so for, for folks who don't know, uh, John Scalzi, I guess, was involved with this, and he did some original pieces for it, which are some of the lighter-hearted ones. Right. I mean, basically, he's the only really light-hearted writer in here, and it was, uh, okay, well, I don't like them as much as the other pieces, but I absolutely cannot blame him for that. Because this series of shorts are basically all wrapped around a certain tone and direction, except for his, which are goofy ones inserted in the middle being lighthearted. And I always considered that to be a terrible choice until just now when you told me that they were trying to copy the feel of heavy metal. And now it makes sense. They gave Scalzi the hardest job is what happened here. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's that's probably very true. I mean, it sounds like this is a group of people who have been trying to do something cool like this for a long time. And as happens in the film industry, you have groups of people that want to make something happen. And even if they have a, a decent amount of juice, uh, it can take a lot of time to get anything done, if anything ever does get done. And I have to say, I appreciate the serendipity that rather than getting to do like a heavy metal sequel or whatever they were trying to do, they had to do this because I think we're all better off for it. Not that I'd be against seeing iterations of heavy metal but <laughs> yeah well you know if they just keep doing more and more of these because like on netflix this is listed as season one right oh, we really oh, hope man. there's more seasons of this netflix please god <laughs> please more seasons of this i i would be so happy i will keep praising you netflix to our audience of literally hundreds of listeners <laughs> oh absolutely and growing and growing damn it <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay well I, I think going deeper on individual episodes, I think, is a valuable thing to do as we talk about this. So, Connor, what's your favorite episode or what's one that you really want to call out? So I thought about this a fair amount and there's just a number um, that I really enjoyed that, um, you know, could all be candidates for my favorite episode. For instance, Three Robots where three sort of wacky, uh, wisecracking robots tour the ruins of human civilization after all the humans are dead is a really charming one. Um, I really liked Lucky 13, which is a military sci-fi about this seemingly unlucky troop carrier ship and the pilot gets assigned to it and the, the, the ship turns out to have a mind of its own and does some cool things to kind of redeem itself and become friends with this pilot. Also great. Um, I've got a fun fact there. Uh, that's Marco Clues. He's the guy who refused to accept a uh, uh, Hugo Award because he he didn't he didn't like the sad puppies and that sort of stuff. We talked about it in one of our previous episodes. Yeah, he's our favorite dude, Marco Clues, because to the, for those who don't know, as Pete was just alluding to, um, the sad puppies who are this group of reactionary kind of gamergator type. Many of them were gamergators actually, who, who uh, in the science fiction world, led by the infamous Vox Day. Uh, tried to brigade the Hugo Nebula voting, or was it just the Hugo? One of those wards. Uh, it was the Hugo, the Hugo yeah. voting, yeah. And brigade it because anybody can vote on it to nominate their slate that was sort of their they considered to be a counter to like the SJWification of science fiction and whatever their ornate reactionary grievances are. And Marco Cluse, being a great military sci-fi guy, was someone that they were promoting, and he told him to get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. So we love him uh, and Lucky Thirteen. Uh, love having you on the show sometime, Marco. If you hear this, and Lucky Thirteen, I think is fantastic. Um, I am. I, I liked Ice Age, which is one of the the. It's like the, it's a live action one with Topher Grace. That was about sort of a civilization they find in their freezer. That was cool. The Secret War about uh, Red Army soldiers in World War II fighting against demons from an alternate dimension was also good. And I could go on like this. Um, oh sure. Many of these were great, and I recommend I recommend all of it really. But uh, the one that I want to fasten onto uh, here we go is Beyond the Aquila Rift. Yes, yes, yes. And I don't want to spoil it. I will just say this: it's set in a future in which there is sort of interstellar kind of hyper jump uh, travel, and. Um, Let's just say that you have a ship returning from whatever run they're on, and they end up in the wrong place. And the dimensions of that wrongness get slowly revealed as the captain is under the impression that he's been reunited with this lovely woman that he had an affair with previously. And he's distressed, but like, he, you know, this, this woman is like calling, telling him to calm down. And the situation gets rather slowly and I think the pacing is quite nice even though it's very short uh the situation gets revealed and I won't spoil it but this is a horror story uh and it is it ends up with a very visceral sense of horror especially because of the juxtaposition between the -the over-the-top erotic element of the story because it is a lot of it is about him having a very torrid you know kind of reignition of this affair that he's having and like the way this is depicted in the cartoon is frankly pretty graphically sexual so you have a lot of that taking up uh screen time and then the horror of what's really have been happening was revealed and the, the sort of the juxtaposition and contradiction the conflict between those two sets of feelings I thought was just like sublime because it is so horrifying. Pete are you on the same page as me here? Oh 100% and I'm really happy you like that author because that is one um, or that 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 episode because that author is one I've been dying to do something with. So it's possible we could we could hit up one of his stories before the end of the year. Alistair Reynolds, right? Yeah, and he's a living yeah. space opera guy, right? Yeah, yeah. It's there are people who make the argument that in around 2000, when space opera was sputtering out, he's the one who gave it CPR. He's certainly he's certainly brought a lot of credibility to that style of writing. Yeah, well, I say based on based on that uh, one story of his that I've seen put on screen, I would love to read some more about him. And I think actually, um, you know, I I hope that heading into the winter and stuff, especially, we'll get to do jump around and do some more um, just random standalone stuff like that because that's a lot of fun. And later on this episode, we'll explain why we're not going to be jumping around quite as randomly in the near future. But, um, yes. you know, like that's... Uh, I would love to do Alistair Reynolds because I found it really bewitching. And I think one of the... How to say this without spoiling it too much. Um, <laughs> you get... Hmm, I'm not trying to spoil this too much for anybody, but... Uh, it, it in a very brief and indeed lurid story uh, that is in some ways a classic space horror story. Uh, in just in that space, and also in a story that wears the pulpy element on its sleeve, as many of these do. Many of them are animated again, very overt sexuality um, and very overt gory violence, and you know that's an intense part of a lot of these stories. Uh, it wears that on its sleeve, and yet it, it is very poignant. It's a very poignant. Despite being revolting and horrifying, it's also a very poignant story because it's about the nature of uh, 
of love broadly stated and erotic affection and what it means to really care for someone. And it's a, it's, it's a very unnerving take on that. And yeah. I thought it was just sublime, uh, you know, personally. They did a double tap thing that I think is pretty interesting because it allows you to see sort of the range and differences between different authors. So like Beyond the Ocular Rift was, was Alistair Reynolds, but Zima Blue was too. The one about the robot and the color. Right, and Zima Blue is arguably the most like art housey one here because it's kind of like the payoff is uh, you could say that it's poignant, but it's also like a bit of a deflation because you're in the the realm of these other stories where it's like oh they're fighting a gigantic monster of some kind that's, that's a recurring theme, and then it's like Zima Zima <laughs> Blue is very interior and inward uh, and asks questions about the self in a more a much more contemplative way. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and Marco Clouse had too because he had uh, he had shapeshifters in addition to Lucky Thirteen. Yeah, shapeshifters is a cool one also because it's about it's about um, I'm not giving too much away here. It's about werewolf soldiers fighting in the <laughs> everything else is the same in the U.S. war in Afghanistan, but they're werewolf soldiers. <laughs> so uh, that was cool. Um, I don't know. Actually, I actually don't know that if I loved the writing of this. I don't know about the story itself, but the writing for the script maybe wasn't as good on that one. But like, it was still a cool concept. Yeah. And by the way, this this whole series for me was an interesting entree into just how prevalent military sci-fi is now and how many forms it takes. And it's this whole. Um, it's this whole chunk of genre fiction that we've talked about, we've talked about, we've had three different, we talked about three different military sci-fi novels so far in this pod. So we're not mm-hmm. remiss uh, in addressing it, but like, it's something that I want to understand better, partly because like military sci-fi is of course, as we talked about already with Clues, it's the one that gets most identified, uh, with political reaction, uh, with right-wing fandoms within sci-fi. And this, this series I thought had a pretty interesting take on that um i don't know that i would call death and robots woke or not or like give it a coherent political allegiance um but it definitely was into not only military sci-fi but a lot of military sci-fi that is recognizably rooted in like recent warfare and i think shapeshifters is number one in that category yeah yeah well and i mean like i don't want to go too far down this path because frankly this is this is a funner episode and it's depressing but we're in an empire right now Oh yes. <laughs> so like it like you don't you don't have 500 bases in 100 countries just if you're trying to keep freedom safe, man. You are you are an empire. And so it's very natural that a lot of the pop culture is about war and the military because that's what we're about right now. Absolutely. And I think that that this is one of the more interesting takes on a lot of that that I've seen. Um and you know, if I were to assign an overall politics to this, I would say generally good in the sense that like it's sort of standard Hollywood liberalism, but it's like, um, there's a lot of environmental commentary and such in this. And I, I, I mean, again, I'm a big advocate for this series. It's by the way, here's what I want to say though. It is not perfect. And in fact, um, I've had a number of people, uh, some people who are close to me that I've recommended this to, and they have been reluctant or been put off by early on. And the reason is, because they started with the first episode, which is Sunny's Edge, which is about um, sort of rings of genetically modified beasts that are controlled by humans telepathically fighting in the underground in like Cockney London. So it's like got a steampunk thing going on and it's got a whole bunch of different influences mixed in there. And 
as, as has been described to me by multiple female viewers of this, they said, like, why is the first episode here have, like, extremely gendered and sexualized violence that's so over the top and unnecessary? And, you know, there's a, there's a clear feminist critique to be given of this. And I have to agree with that. I think that it, one of my major... I, I'm not even saying that they shouldn't have made Sunny's Edge, but, like, leading with it to open the series, uh, because, again, it does have... It is fair to say that giving way too much that it has very gendered and sexualized violence in it and touches yeah. a lot on on sexual assault. Um, and it's also just physically gross the way that a lot of these are. Oh, there's body horror out the yin yang. Yeah, there's a lot of body horror in these. This is like the, the overwhelming, so many of these have an element of horror, right? And I, before I get into that, though, I want to conclude and just say, like, I, I don't think Netflix, that they should have led with that episode. I think they should have led with something a little bit more more welcoming because I feel that's, that's off-putting and a lot of people are not going to want to see it. And I understand that. And, and it's actually some of those really gratuitous moments here are, are kind of a caveat. I feel the need to give certain people and recommend this to them. Um, so that I think was an error, but the horror thing is interesting to me. I was thinking about that as I was rewatching because of course, beyond the Aquila riff is absolutely horror. A lot of these are horror. Sure. And we're going to do more horror on this pod. Um, because we're going to talk about HP Lovecraft. I've been promising that for a long time. It's going to happen in the next few months at length. I promise you. Um, so that's, he, and he's one of the, of course, the godfathers of the, of marrying, uh, science fiction and horror and uh, horror is this genre that is having such a big moment out in the culture. Uh, the argument is often advanced that horror movies are the most dynamic and arguably the healthiest part of English language cinema, which is otherwise many people would argue in a bad way, but that horror is thriving. Horror gives opportunities for people to do things like us, a movie that we discussed on this show. Um, Jordan Peele, you have some really creative and interesting stuff done under the guise of horror, and that has reached into science fiction in a big way. And I don't have a coherent theory of that. I have some thoughts on it, but Pete, what do you think about that and how it relates to this enterprise and how it relates to science fiction in this moment? Well, um, I think that horror has always been a thermometer. Um, that it's, uh, it's a form of escapism that is negative. And I think that many people get into it because, um, they, they can't, well, I, I, this, this almost sounds like, uh, like pop psychology and I apologize. I, I don't mean to go in this direction, but like, I, I feel, I feel like when you can't trust the fantasy, horror still has some appeal. And so I feel like one of the reasons that horror does really well right now is it's the way that people can distract themselves and get into it, but it's not, uh, but the fact that on some level it is awful and is scary gives it an, a, an element of realism that people can, can latch onto. Whereas most other cinema, like a romantic comedy right now just seems ridiculous. Well, I, I would be... I would have said, I, I think, okay, so first of all, I think you make a great point, and that was very nicely stated, and there's a lot to latch on to. I would push back at the last thing you said. I mean, I don't think that if the world is could get dark enough overall for everyone that romantic comedy was not a good genre. I'm not, I'm not sure what that would mean because, like, romantic comedy gr grows out of like folklore. Like, like there's, it's like this is a longstanding strain in human storytelling. So like, I think we have different views of this because, well, well, people are always gonna date. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, and maybe maybe what's happening here is just like I'm having a negative. Well, day, no, right? I, like, 
Perhaps you are, but I want to no, respond to what you said, though, in a more positive way. That last part was what I wanted to object to. But I think that, that, that it gets to the heart of your really great point, which is to say people do want escapism from stories. They do want imagination. They want fantastical and speculative elements, which is what we specialize in on this show. It's also what I found myself moving towards as a writer uh, without ever really intending to and just doing it organically. And yet what you posit is so interesting. People are suspicious of fantasies that make them feel too good. Those they, those fantasies feel like you're taking a drug of a kind or you're being otherwise irresponsible and you're shutting down your recognition of what's going on around you. And we're in a cultural moment where, and I'm not denying that many things are dark. I think it's always important to keep historical perspective. But like, yes, people are, there's a big strain in the culture of just saying, I don't trust escape, truly escapist fantasies. I want something like Us, the Jordan Peele movie, because it will transport me in the way that I want stories to but it's also going to bring me face to face with something through the, through the tools of allegory and that the fantastical elements are going to make me confront things in the world that I don't want to hide my face from and I, or I feel bad if I do and I think that is a really really phenomenal point Pete uh, you know five points to Gryffindor for that one that was really <laughs> <laughs> thank you it's great I there is something I wanted to ask you about and you see the like we've known each other a while now, like probably probably a year before we started the pod. But I think over over the last six months, we've really gotten to know each other better. And one of the things I've been wondering through this process, particularly through your reaction to this series of shorts, is you have always held uh, let's let's call it a lack of preference for the short story. And it seems to me that your interest in genre fiction and specifically your interest in Love, Death and Robots hints at a kindling of interest in the idea of a short story and what they can do. Am I misreading that? No, you're not. And I think that you're you're right to note this. It's very astute. Um, and part of to go back to what I said earlier, you're like, we're going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, who is a guy who worked with novellas and short novels, but also a tremendous number of short stories. And he's always been a big favorite of mine and probably the, the crowning exception to, the, to this whole I don't read short stories thing, which is broadly true of me. Um, but he is an exception. There's a few others that I really love to revisit, like Flannery O'Connor. But yeah, there's a kindling of interest, and I really want to go back. So, so I think the one thing that I've concluded from doing Love, Death, and Robots is I do really want to address some science fiction short stories for this show. And we'll figure out how to do that. And one way that we're going to do it is by doing Lovecraft. But we'll find other avenues as well. Um, because, yes, I am very interested. I feel like I've missed out. And I've had a lot of chance to think about <laughs> my writing career lately. We actually have an exclusive episode in the can that we're going to release at some point where I just bitch about publishing, hopefully in an illuminating <laughs> way. But uh, I, I, I think you sell yourself short there. You do more bit, bit, than bitch about publishing, but go on. It's Yeah, I mean, I the, the point is, like, I've talked on the show a lot about being a writer and, and how that operates, and we're going to have, of course, talk about that a lot more. But, like, the, the main thing is that I think that, has stood in my way of the short stories is just that I really, really, really wanted to learn how to write novels. And I'm still very much in the midst of, of learning that. I think I've come a long way since I started that process, but like there's still plenty to learn. And the novel is a very complex and intricate form that is in no way just an elongated short story. And it also, in most cases, should not just be gluing different short stories together, which is a very common move, even especially among 
uh, literary writers, and Pete has told me that this was what the trashiest sci-fi novels used to do, which is ironic that this is... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this, it's ironic then that it's therefore what, <laughs> what a lot of um, literary writers are doing nowadays. But the point being, there's a big gulf between novels and short stories, and I think Ludworth and Robots is a shining example of some very good short stories being brought to screen that really speaks well of the form and shows you what it can do. Again, with that one, that snappy, that really pure, penetrating, sharp conceit. Um that is so sort of resplendent in these stories. And I, I, when I say that the whole, my show, when I learned the novel, it's sort of an oppositional defiant thing because the way one learns to write in, in writing programs. And also I, I think in the genre fiction writing workshops that sci-fi's had, you know, uh, workshops of its own for a very long time, that sort of mirror and run parallel to the uh, formal academic programs that the literary writers have. As an example, friend of the show, Walter John Williams runs Tao's Toolbox. There you go. And uh, we are hoping, because we've talked to him, we've been in contact with Walter John Williams here. I'm telling you this on the show, folks. We're hoping to have him on the show. I'm not going to make any promises, but we're hoping to have him on the show in the future. It won't be super soon. But um, yeah, and, th- and this is more than us reading tea, le- tea leaves. So no promises, but like we're it seems like there's a real possibility. Yeah, so that's one thing we can look forward to. We've talked to him about that, and um, you know, hopefully that happens. But regardless, the point being that this is a longstanding thing, and uh, I assume, I have to believe, that a lot of these workshops, at least historically, uh, a lot of what happens at, at those science fiction workshops is talking, is workshopping and talking about short stories, and the main reason is it takes a lot longer to read a novel than to read a short story. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, there's no secret about this. And um, yeah. I I really wanted to I I have been avoiding learning how to write good short stories and I've been avoiding reading them because I was so focused on novels and now that I'm a little bit more secure in my understanding of the novel form I am actually more interested in circling back to short stories that was a long spiel for not much payoff but I think you understand where I'm coming from now well and I mean like it it makes me wonder what what lessons cross pollinate well like I mean does does being a good basketball player make you a better boxer? I don't know. Like, I would have no idea because it's totally outside of my range of expertise. But I sort of wonder, if you became a short story writer, would that assist your novels? And I can't answer that. Oh, I think I think certainly it, historically speaking, has for many writers, and many writers do both, for sure. I just, I, look, writing novels may come naturally to certain people, especially if they have a particular kind of story that, that will sort of fall into place for them organically, which does happen uh, serendipitously at times. But it is a very strange, very artificial, and in the form that we know it best, very recent form. And so it probably it takes almost everybody who's serious about it years to just sort of figure out how to do it. And it's very uncommon to publish the first novel you complete a manuscript of it. And in fact, my first completed novel that we've we discussed this in our exclusive episode, but like there's a pretty good chance that my first completed novel that Pete has read, um, and liked and liked. Thank you. Uh, there's a good chance it will not be published at least anytime soon. We might circle back to it, but that's just a case in point. And this is not uncommon at all. Um, it is a devilishly frustrating form, and one takes a long time to do. And so I've crowded short stories out of my consciousness. But I, I have to say, if there's it, it, ironically, this is one of the best advertisements for the short story form I've seen in a long time, maybe ever. And it happens to be uh, adaptation of the, that form to screen. And I think that that's a really important point about Love, Death, and Robots as well. 
that this is a this is as beautiful of a synthesis of prose fiction and screen as you are likely to ever see. And I think part of it's that you have Netflix giving them the leeway to do something weird and unusual. And please, God, do more of this and use more good <laughs> prose fiction as your source code for it. And you will get great results like this. And I really hope a lot of people watch this. Uh, if you haven't watched this, go ahead and, and go watch a few of them, please, because I want Netflix to get some numbers on this. Um, exactly. So, Connor, uh, before we we talk about where we're going with the pod and, you know, give people a little insight into what's ahead, uh, just out of curiosity, what are you reading or, in, you know, involved with right now that doesn't relate to the pod? Ah, great question. Well, <laughs> spoiler alert, I've the last couple of weeks I've been reading Dune because we're, we're getting to Dune and it's pretty <laughs> ding, long. Ding, ding, ding. So <laughs> that's, that's coming up. Um, other than that, I, I think that the books that have meant, I've had a couple of books in the last couple of months that I've been reading that um, have made a strong impact on me that I've been recommending to people. One is George Eliot's Middlemarch, which is quite long. In many editions, it's going to be close to a thousand pages. Uh, it is, George Eliot was a 19th, 19th century British novelist who was, uh, that is her pen name. She's a woman who used a male pen name, uh, and wrote a lot of very large, highly involved books. And Middlemarch is set, it's, I think it was written in the 1870s, but it was set in like the 1830s. So it's already backwards looking when it's being written. And it is, the subhead is something like, a, a, a you know, a story of provincial life. I'm probably getting that wrong. But that's basically, but it's about several different relationships and families as they interact and intersect across several years in this this town, the area of the town of Middlemarch in provincial England. And uh, it is knockout phenomenal. Virginia Woolf, one of my favorite novelists, said I think quite correctly that it's one of Middlemarch is one of the only English novels that is written for grown-ups. And what she meant by that is that it is, it really, what it feels like is, this will be, this will be legible to a lot of people, it, Middlemarch is like a much more layered, elongated, uh, intricate version of Jane Austen. A lot of the aspects that you like in Austen, her wit, her focus on the marriage plot, uh, her, her access to this precise milieu and this precise era, is to be found uh, in, I, th I think, I would argue, People will kill me for this, but in in sort of uh, in many ways greater depth and sensitivity and and intelligence in some ways in George Eliot, which is not to diminish Jane Austen, but simply to raise up George Eliot as being one of the absolute greatest novelists in the English tradition. So, um, Middlemarch is amazing, and I will talk at less length with the next one. But another classic nineteenth century novel I've been reading is a French novel, The Red and the Black, by Stendhal, which is about Julian Sorel rakish upstart young peasant uh in in a french village who has a series of romantic adventures he's a great seducer travels to paris spends time becoming a priest does all kinds of things and has this ridiculous over-the-top arc and it is a rip-roaring good time it's fairly long but it's not nearly as long as middle march and those are two like mega canonical novels that i would recommend to anyone was that a good answer pete that was a great answer man it's very one of the nice things about talking to you in this space is that I hear the passion that I have when I talk about I oh, I don't know uh, Dune 
reflected in the books that you've gotten excited about over the years. So it's really cool to hear. And I, it makes me want to check out Middlemarch. And so I expect I will. I Yeah, you should. And uh, it's well with your time. It is it's a tome. You read fast. It'll probably still take you a fair amount of time despite that. But uh, it's everyone you should everyone should read Middlemarch. If you like books at all, if you like novels, you should read Middlemarch at one point in your life, even though it is long. That's that's my serious recommendation. And on that note, speaking of the long books, I've already mm-hmm. said that I'm reading Dune and I already said that we're getting to it, but I wanna I think that here's a good spot to explain a little bit about what we're doing and how this pertains to the future of the pod. Um, sure. Pete, can I, can I, can I roll with it? Go for it. Yeah. So, um, one of the really fun things about this podcast is that we've had the opportunity to to just jump around randomly and come up with concepts, uh, often not very far in advance and read whatever we wanted and, and kind of learn how to podcast together and develop our audience. We appreciate all of you. Uh, please become patrons, but regardless, we appreciate you. Except for you, Bob. Yeah, except for uh, patron Bob, who's not my dad, is also named Bob. Uh, we mean a different Bob. Uh, <laughs> except for you, uh, who's going to hear this and get mad at me? Uh, except, who can I call out and make fun of? Uh, Ryan Boyd? Ryan Boyd. Fuck you, Ryan Boyd. No, I'm just kidding. I love you, Ryan Boyd. <laughs> you're great. You're my you're my buddy. You're my middle march buddy as well. Uh, I love you, man. Um, early patron as well. Become patrons, folks. It really does help us. But uh, yeah, I won't. why are we attacking our patrons? Yeah, I will. I will not believe. <laughs> I think a terrible job of this. But Pete and I had a lot of fun jumping around randomly, uh, without rhyme or reason, really, and, and doing movies with guests and watching this this show we just talked about and reading somewhat random books. And look, it's been a blast, and we're gonna keep doing it. So I feel like that informal liveness to this podcast is really important to both of us. We never want to be too rigid about what we do, and we always want to be having fun on the air uh, for you for you all and with you all. But we also want to try adding some depth, at least at certain strategic points. And there are all kinds of things in the realm of sci-fi um, that deserve more than just one 45-minute episode. And one of those things that I would not feel at all okay doing one 45-minute episode on is Frank Herbert's Dune. And so we have we're addressing this problem by doing our first themed month. August on this show is Dune Month. And that doesn't mean that every piece of content we post is going to be Dune related. Some of them probably will not be. But we're definitely going to have a full lineup of Dune content with different guests we've already spoken to. And I won't promise specific ones yet because we haven't recorded with them yet. But uh, we've got some some good guests that are interested. And we will we will finagle some good stuff. We're going to watch the David Lynch movie. Um, we're going to talk about Dune at length over the course of a few hours of content with different people from different angles, and we're going to try to go deep on it. And, you know, I'm sure that we will repeat ourselves quite a bit because we do that on this pod. That's just part of the, part of the deal. But we're really trying to bring you a lot of original content around this mega canonical story that is the best-selling science fiction novel ever written. It means a lot to a lot of people. Uh, I, I like it a lot. Pete loves it. Uh, it's important to both of us in different ways. And we're going to do a full month around that. Um, and, you know, I already said we're going to do some other themed months that we already are planning. But Dune is the imminent one coming in August. Uh, some of that content will be paywalled. So please become a patron to get the full experience. But we're going to try that. And we're going to see how it goes. And we might do a lot more theme months in the future. We probably will never go fully to that. But we might do a lot more of those um, if this goes well. And we're just seeing what works. This is still very much the experimentation phase. And... Uh, by the way, just as a fair warning, one reason we're recording on Love, Death, and Robots again, and certain things have been have been uh, not hinky, but like the way things are is it, we're, things are the way they are partly because 
I am moving to Montana in a few days. Well, I'm stopping in Wyoming first, but I'm headed out of New York City in a few days. And uh, it's sort of like the reverse of the Beverly Hillbillies. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> right, I'm a city. It's it's City Slickers. We've seen that classic '90s movie uh, or '80s movie, one of the two. Anyway, uh, it's all the same now. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Time runs together. But I'm moving back to my my home region, which is the Mountain West, which I'm excited about. But um, that's taking place, and you know, I'm moving. I'm packing stuff up. I'm dismantling my little uh, makeshift home studio here in a few days uh, that I'm recording on currently. And but like as it's happening, we're also doing the Dune thing. And um, I guess the point I want to drive home is that like this pod will always fluctuate in different ways, and we won't always be killing it. We try every time we record, but like we're experimenting, and we want to hear from you. Also, uh, and I can promise you also you'll get the best possible hearing if you become a patron at patreon.com slash podside picnic. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, while you were talking about the Dune stuff, I had a I had an idea I wanted to bounce off of you in front of the listeners. What the hell? Uh, so as long as we're doing a Dune month, I would love to do an episode about all of Frank Herbert's bad writing because he wrote like the green brain. He wrote Hellstrom's Hive. He wrote... Oh, God, Heaven Makers. Like, he did some of the worst schlocky 50s sci-fi pop you're ever going to encounter. And I don't think it's fair to talk about Dune without, like, doing a couple readings out of that stuff. Hey, we could maybe do that as part of Dune Month or later. But, yes, I'm very interested in that concept. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Um, anything else we should add here? What do we think, Pete? Um, well, I, you mentioned that they sub- should subscribe, and we talked about the show, so I think we're probably done. Oh, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what, I w- what I've been up to. Oh, please do. Uh, when you've been talking about Love, Death, and Robots and how you like it as a transitional form between the short story and, and you know, television, I've been looking for other transitional forms. And one of the places I've been looking for it is in podcasts because it's a relatively new art. And there are people who are, in, who are attempting to transition narrative to podcast form. And like a classic example of that is Welcome to Night Vale, which I think is a very well done show that I don't happen to enjoy listening to. But I found one that I really liked and it's called uh, Limetown. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. This is all news to me. It is a seven-episode show that is about the disappearance of a small town in uh, Tennessee, and it's treated as a series of investigative reports, and it is science fiction. Very cool. Cool. All right. Well, um, I'll have to listen to it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to keep digging around for weird stuff like that. Not necessarily in podcast form, but like, you know, games that successfully capture uh, the narrative art, that sort of thing. I think it's more and more people are doing things besides books alongside the novel. And I want to see what those things are and how they're doing. And it's, it's nice to find a quality representation like that because there's so much out there in the world where people do an attempt and it's just embarrassing to look at. This wasn't. Great. Well, I'm psyched. Um, I am going to check out Limetown. And uh, folks, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for listening to us ramble about Live at Living Robots. And go pick up Dune. Remind yourself about Dune because we're going to be hitting it hard. We're going to be hitting it like a freaking sandworm hitting a thopter here in, <laughs> in a few days. My God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs> 
like a like a sandstorm hitting the shield wall. <laughs> Cheers.